you might like to turn to Philippians because we're going to get there eventually, although I am going to read some other bits before we get there this morning. You might remember we're in this series, Against All Odds, where we're looking at these words that Paul writes in Philippians. Truth be told, he was filled with hate. He wouldn't have seen it that way, or he wouldn't have understood it that way, but that's what it was, hate. He would have said he was being loyal. He would have said he was being true to himself and everything he knew. He would have said he was only doing what was right. Indeed, he did say that. He would have said he was rooting out what was bad and wrong. He would have said he was protecting everything he believed in. He would have said he was doing what he thought he should do. He would have said he was doing what he ought to do. He was doing what he understood his responsibility was to be doing. And, whatever else you say about it, he was certainly serious about carrying out what he thought were his responsibilities. He tracked down dissenters. He pursued those who had defected. And he was ruthless in his efficiency. He didn't always do the dirty work. He could let others take it into their own hands if it served his purpose. But if one thing was clear... He was going to destroy this new, fledgling group who had broken away from what he thought was right and true. If one thing was true, it was that he was going to stop anything that would damage what he cherished. If one thing was clear, it was that he would put an end to what he saw before it had a chance to become dangerous. I'm going to read some words to you from Acts chapter 7, that you will know well, reading from verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison." If anyone had a reason to feel the burden of guilt, it was this man, Saul. When they first met, there was something about him that was irresistible. 
He watched from afar, intrigued, impressed, fascinated. But that day he turned up at the lakeside, there was something irresistible. And the invitation to join him was irresistible. At one level, it didn't make any sense at all. None. But at another level, it made perfect sense, although he would never have been able to tell you why. To leave everything he knew, the only thing he knew, was madness. Only, somehow it wasn't. And the things he saw and the things he heard, they were simply extraordinary. They were simply out of this world. Which, it turns out, was actually true. They were things of another world, another kingdom. They were of something so much bigger and so much better than anything he had seen or heard before. Those three years were extraordinary until it all went so tragically wrong. Just the thought of it all ending was too much. It simply couldn't be. He promised to protect him. He promised to defend him. He promised never to walk away. And then he did. In the most important moment of his life, he did. He denied he'd ever known him. And Jesus was put to death. If anyone had reason to feel the burden of guilt, it was this man, Peter. He had the power, the authority, the charisma, but he should have been away. He could have anything he wanted. It went with the territory. He had built his reputation. He was adored and respected. Actually, they loved him. They had right from the beginning. But he should have been away. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it was a lack of judgment. Maybe he thought it wouldn't matter. Maybe he'd simply become arrogant over time. But he knew what he saw he could have So he took it. It turned into one huge mess and now he found himself desperately trying to find a way out. He came up with a plan. A plan that found him complicit in deceit and murder. He should have been away. If anyone had reason to feel the burden of guilt, it was David, King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. It is possible, I suppose, for there to be someone who has never or who does not wrestle with the burden of guilt. How about you? We have these stories of those who have gone before us We know what they did. What's your story? Truth is, as fallen, flawed, finite human beings, there are lots of things that can leave us feeling guilty. Those things we did 
we know we should not have done. Those things we didn't do that we know we should have done. Those things we said or didn't say. Those choices that if we had them again, we would choose differently. Those opportunities you squandered or didn't take. Those roads you followed that you wouldn't take again. Those moments that had far-reaching consequences in which you still live. Perhaps one of the biggest triggers of anxiety today is one called regret. Right back in the beginning, we find Adam and Eve wrestling with guilt. I love the thought of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which Genesis chapter 3 tells us that he did. On this day, though, Adam and Eve want to hide from him. On this day, though, Adam and Eve want to avoid walking with God in the cool of the day. On this day, though, Adam and Eve are living in the consequences of the choice they have made. On this day, though, Adam and Eve have guilt and regret in their hearts. On this day, though, Adam and Eve are afraid. If anyone had reason to feel the burden of guilt... Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. Truth is, most probably, we still do the same. Adam and Eve thought they could hide from God, so they hid. Max Lucado suggests some strategies that we use to deal with guilt that we carry from the sin in our lives. We numb it, drink, pornography, drugs, an affair, something that deflects our attention from the pain. We deny it. We pretend it didn't really happen. We do what David did and concoct one plan to conceal another, wondering how long we can keep it up. We minimize it. We just messed up a bit. We just lost our way. We had a moment of lapse of judgment. We bury it. We get busy and we stay busy so we never have time for it to come to the surface. And the busier we are, the less time we have to address what we most dislike about ourselves. We punish it. We hurt ourselves literally and emotionally. We study more. We give more. We do more. We pray more. The rods with which we beat ourselves. We avoid it. We don't talk to anyone. Spouse, partner, friends, family, life group. Leaders. We redirect it. We get angry at others. We offset it. We strive for the perfect relationship, the perfect marriage, the perfect career, the perfect look, the perfect persona. 
We live to be perfect, no mistakes, no foul-ups, not by me or anyone. We embody it. We don't do bad things. We are bad. We don't mess up. We are a mess up. We don't fail. We are a failure. Adam and Eve made fig leaves into clothes and hid. I'm wondering what you do. King David probably wrote Psalm 32 after his affair with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 32, he writes this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David teaches us something really important about guilt and God. The simplest way of expressing it would be this. I confess, you God, forgive. I confess, you God, forgive. Confession is the knocking to which the door of forgiveness opens. Confession is the seeking that finds God's grace. Confession is the asking that receives God's love. In that psalm, David is honest about what happens when he is silent. His bones wasted away. He groaned. He lost his strength. We might express it differently, but unresolved guilt can affect us in many ways. Anger, being miserable, being stressed out, being fretful. We lose our zest for life. David said the one who is blessed is the one who confesses their guilt. And David should know, because David never found the end of God's love. Peter met Jesus on a beach at the beginning of their journey together. Peter met Jesus on a beach over a charcoal fire soon after Jesus was resurrected. You know, that would not have been lost on Peter, for he was standing by a charcoal fire when he denied he'd ever known Jesus. Jesus met Peter at the point of his deepest pain, his greatest regret, and the source of his guilt. Peter had to confront his guilt. And in that moment, he discovered that there is no end to God's love. Saul travelled roads to find followers of the way and bring them to prison in Jerusalem. God met Saul on a road to Damascus. Saul, the terrorist, the spiller of blood. God met Saul with his grace and his love and everything changed. Paul never found the end of God's love. 
David, Peter, Paul, all met with God's mercy, his tender-hearted, loving compassion. None of them deserved God's mercy, but then that's what God's mercy is. It's undeserved. He loves them because he loves them because he loves them because he loves them because he loves them. And God's mercy is an expression of his love. Neither David, nor Peter, nor Paul ever found the end of God's love or God's mercy. I could add to the list of names those who never found the end of God's love. Here we go. Samson, Rahab, Gideon, Elisha, Elijah, Ruth. And maybe I could add some more names that you might recognize who've never found the end of God's love. Ian, Lisa, Sandra, Marion, and you. Yes, you. The deep and profound truth about God is that his mercy extends to you. Yes, to you. God longs to love you. He loves to show his tender heart to you, to wrap you in his compassion, to extend his mercy to you. We can choose to hide, to live our life in our guilt and all its consequences. God's desire, though, is that we leap into his mercy to experience his forgiveness that brings life and hope. Paul wasn't perfect, but because he had experienced God's mercy, he was able to write this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. To rejoice in the Lord always is to rejoice in who He is and to rejoice in His mercy. No one has ever yet found the end of God's love because God is merciful. You can choose to carry your guilt, your regret. Or you can choose to give it to God honestly and trust yourself to his mercy. There's a lovely story about a group of trapeze artists known as the Flying Rodleys. Mostly, when we watch a trapeze act, we watch the one who's flying between the trapezes, the one who's doing all the somersaults. But when asked uh, the secret of trapeze artists, one of the flyers said this, the secret 
is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, my catcher, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me to safety over the apron. The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I am not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grabbed Joe's wrists, I might break them, or he might break mine, and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust, with outstretched arms, that the catcher will be there for him. We get our, Greek word, uh, we get our word trapeze from the Greek word trapeza, which actually means table. And about the only time that word is used in the New Testament is when Jesus gathers his disciples for the Last Supper around the trapeza, the table. This is the moment when Jesus will let go completely and trust himself fully to his Father. When we watch a trapeze act in progress, we often watch the flyer. We would do well to watch the catcher. In the trapeze act, it is the catcher who has to have perfect timing, to be in the right place at the right time every time. The flyer can only fly if he has complete confidence in the one who catches them. It is around the table that we trust ourselves to the one who catches us, the one whose love we remember in bread and wine. God is not in the business of dropping us. He can be trusted to meet us and to catch us and to hold us. When we are free to trust ourselves to the one who will catch us, we are free to fly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Trust in His mercy, for no one has yet found the end of God's love. Amen.